as we um, looked at that slideshow just a little bit ago, we're reminded that we're still um, really enjoying the success of the Windy City Project and um, exciting to Diane and me that over 70 of you were involved in that. Now, as you can see through the pictures, different people did different things. We were working in different locations, and different relationships were built along the way. So if you were to interview um, several people involved in the Windy City Project, you would get some different perspectives. You would get some varying stories, even, even different takes on the answer to questions like, what was your best experience? What did you learn? Or what do you think this means for our church? And how does this fuel and align with our vision? All those things. You would get different answers to those. Now, now the, vision, the, the answers wouldn't contradict, but they would be different because of different perspectives. We've experienced this and we look at it through different lenses and different views. It's all one wonderful, significant experience for the church and and for individuals, but different perspectives on one thing that happened. And today in John's gospel, we come to the cross, the cross which is so central to our faith, so pivotal for the gospel message. And if you're visiting with us today, we have been working our way through the gospel of John since April of last year, and that's why we're on the crucifixion on August 3rd. And next Sunday is Easter, by the way. So if you missed Easter last spring, next week here. But today we're at the cross, so central to our faith, so pivotal for the gospel message. All, all four gospel writers tell us about the cross, and many of the details are the same, but each of them has their own emphasis, their own perspective on the suffering of Jesus. They focus on different words as his final words, and we count them all together, and we come up with the seven last words of Christ, but not one gospel writer has all seven of them. One crucial event, event, but each version with a slightly different feel. And John, especially, as we've seen all through this series, has the most different in terms of his perspective. John alone gives us the detail of his conversation about Jesus' mother with John. John alone gives us this picture of the spear thrust in Jesus' side and the water and blood coming forth. Only John talks about the broken legs and the presence of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea preparing Jesus for burial together. And not only different details, but looking through John's lens on these details, we see some specific symbolism that comes through. In fact, there's tons of symbolism in this passage. Some of them I'm not even touching. When, when Roy was reading and, and he was talking about that seamless garment, Megan leaned over to me and said, more detail. I said, yeah, and I'm not even talking about the garment at all today. There's tons of stuff in here. But John has very intentionally put a lot of this symbolism in there, again, to further convince us that Jesus is who he said he was. Further, to convince us that we should put our faith and belief in him and live in him. To further convince us that Jesus is who he said he is, the king, the lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, the giver of the spirit, the giver of life. And those themes and what they mean to us is what we're going to look at this morning. I'm really just going to look at three today that really come out in this and are reinforced in other places of scripture. So we'll say this, that the cross is the great sign to which this whole gospel has been pointing. And as we look at the cross through John's lens, we discover three key themes that draw us to Jesus, to his victory and the gift of life that he offers. So we're going to look at, first of all, the cross and this imagery of the king. We've looked at the king a lot in the last few weeks, but it's so strong in this passage. The cross and the king. Secondly, we're going to look at the cross and the lamb, the lamb of God. The lamb is not mentioned by name here, but very much present in the symbolism of John that he lifts up in the story. And then thirdly, the cross and the spirit. Jesus is always speaking of giving over his spirit, and that actually comes through on the cross as well. The cross and the king. 
The theme of kingship we've already seen and we've interacted with. Last week we had that ironic cry of the Jewish leaders who said, we have no king but Caesar. And then in light of that, we reflected on it. We finished the morning last week reflecting on our own relationship with Christ and asked ourselves, can we truly cry out, we have no king but Jesus. We have no king but Jesus. So this theme of royalty comes through. But John pushes the theme even deeper as Jesus comes to the cross and even to the grave. And it comes from, first from one we can't really trust when he calls Jesus the king, and that's Pilate. And Pilate has fastened a sign onto the cross that says, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. He's mocking, of course. He's making fun of the whole thing. He doesn't believe it anyway. He believes Jesus is innocent, but now he just sort of mocked. Today it would have said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, ROTFL. You know what ROTFL, don't you? Rolling on the floor laughing. (laughs) Jesus, King of the Jews. He's not the King of the Jews. But he would put it up there as a mockery. But when the Jewish leaders insist that he change it, he says, what I have written, I have written. Or again, in today's translation, what would we say? It is what it is. (laughs) It is what it is. For Pilate, it just serves to state that he does have sufficient reason to crucify him because of uh, what the Jews have asked for. But more importantly, for our understanding, John refers to all of this to underscore Jesus' kingship. Pilate, who doesn't believe it, Pilate, who's mocking, puts this up there, and John's saying it's up there because it's true. It underscores Jesus' kingship, and it is final, and it is unchangeable. He really is the king of kings. Even pitiful Pilate says so. But there's even more going on here with the cross and the king. This whole imagery of being lifted up. Jesus is really the global king here. Lifted up is a phrase that we hear all through John. We heard it back in chapter 3 and 314, which is just a couple of verses before 316, as you know. And that's where Jesus says, just as Moses has lifted up, lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And what he's talking about is the cross. I'll be lifted up on the cross, but that same word meant, meant exalted. I'll be lifted up to glory. I'll lift, be lifted up in an exalted place, like a king who is elevated to his throne. The same word for lifting up was for a king put on his throne. And here at the cross, John makes sure that we know that it is all people for whom he is being lifted up. And he tells us that the inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is written in three languages. In Aramaic, which was the the Jewish language at that time. They didn't speak the formal old Hebrew, but Aramaic was a form of it. For the Latins, who were the, they spoke in Latin, all the Roman um, conquerors that were there. And then Greek, which culturally was the most widely spoken language of that time in that whole uh, region of the world. In a sense, what John is saying here was in these three languages, but he's saying this king is not just some uh, provincial ruler in some sort of backwater nation that Rome is trying to keep under control. He is a supreme monarch. He is a supreme monarch whose authority sweeps up all people of all languages. Back in chapter 10, there was one little phrase that we looked at briefly that says, Jesus said, uh, he spoke of, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And Jesus is talking about Gentiles. And so it's really not just these three languages of Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, but we could say it's all languages. We could put Swahili up there. We could put French up there. We could put Swedish up there. We could put Spanish up there. It's just like our title slide for our series. Amini is believe in Swahili. You can pronounce it in French, the second one. Pistuo is Greek. Creer is Spanish. And tro is the Swedish word for believe. This one lifted up is a king. This is a world-changing, global, cosmic king. And even as he is buried, there is elements of his royalty even in the burial. In our focusing on the gruesomeness of the crucifixion and the, and the horror of Jesus' suffering, he was suffering like a, a common, low-life criminal. 
We may miss that his burial was actually more the burial of royalty. John doesn't want us to miss that. You see, there was no pauper's grave for Jesus, like Judas Iscariot, who was in that common field of common graves. And that's where most who died by crucifixion ended up in common, unmarked graves, and they died in shame. But John notices, notes that when Jesus died, a wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea, who we meet in the other Gospels, Joseph provided a brand new tomb. Most tombs had been hollowed up and were filled up with bodies over the years. This was a brand new tomb. It was never used before. It was on the fringes of Jerusalem where historians tell us that the well-off people of Jerusalem had their tombs and it was in a beautiful garden, not in an abandoned space where the paupers were buried. A brand new tomb in a beautiful garden. King David's tomb was in a garden. The great king's tombs were in gardens. And John also notes that the wealthy Jewish leader Nicodemus, who we met back in chapter 3, that Nicodemus brought a tremendous amount of burial spices to Jesus' grave. Expensive, 75 pounds of very expensive spices that were only used for the wealthy. It was customary for Israel's kings and sometimes for the wealthy. As Gary Berg says in his commentary, Jesus was buried in a king's hoard of spices. Though he is going to the cross, he is only a victim for a brief moment. He is headed for victory. He is the victor, the global king, the Lord of lords, the giver of life. And so even at the cross, in John's version of this, through John's lens, we see the king in the cross. A second theme is the cross and the lamb. John does not refer to the Passover lamb here, but the rich symbolism and the cross close connections to the Passover are intentionally woven through. At the cross, Jesus is the the perfect lamb, and it's this image of the no broken bones that John points to here. After John has reported that Jesus has in fact died, he goes on to tell us some new information. It was this day of preparation before, Passover had been the day before, but the next, Sunday, the next morning, Saturday, would be the, the Sabbath of Passover week. And the Jews didn't want any dead bodies hanging around on crosses or, or alive bodies that were suffering. And so they, he, they asked the Roman soldiers to come and make sure that the three were dead. And so they broke the legs of the criminals on either side of Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they discovered that he was already dead and they did not need to break the legs. And of course, breaking legs meant that those hanging could not lift themselves up to grab breath if they asphyxiated and died much more quickly, unable to support themselves. There was no need to break the bones of Jesus. In verse 36, John even says this was to fulfill the scripture, but he doesn't mention any of the scriptures. But we know that in the scriptures, the Passover lamb was one who had to be perfect, unblemished, and unbroken. In Exodus 12 and in Numbers 9, the Passover instructions say that the lamb must be eaten inside one house, take none of the meat outside the house, do not break any of the bones. And in Psalm 34:20, we have more of a, the symbolism, the, the prophetic for the Messiah to come. The Lord protects all their bones, not one of them will be broken. And John says, this fulfills the scripture. Jesus is like that perfect lamb. Jesus is like that Passover lamb at the cross. Then Jesus is the Passover lamb who is cleansing us from sin. John had even looked ahead way, way ahead to this way back in the first chapter. You may remember our first week. It wasn't that long ago, this April of 2013. But anyway, uh, in John 1.29, where John the Baptist sees Jesus walking by and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Those words came from John the Baptist's mouth looking on Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry. So John recorded it there in chapter 1, and then it comes and it meets the symbolism here in chapter 19. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 is referring to this and speaks of Christ our Passover. Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. 
To John, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, the one bringing forgiveness and, and freedom. He is the one whose blood covers all of our sin, not just symbolically, not just ritually like happened in the Old Covenant, but he is now the perfect Lamb of God, the one that was looked ahead to in all those imperfect symbols that looked ahead. He is the perfect Lamb. He really does take away our sins. Our sin truly is covered by the blood of Jesus. The original Passover lamb's blood saved the Israelites from certain death and led them to new life and freedom when they left Egypt. But this perfect sacrifice, this perfect lamb, will also forgive, save, and free his people for good and give the gift of new life. The cross and the lamb. Journalist Ellen Vaughn wrote a book called The God Who Hung on a Cross. And she tells this gripping story of how the gospel came to a small village in Cambodia in Southeast Asia. In September of 1999, Pastor Tai Sang traveled to Kampong Tom province in northern Cambodia. Throughout that isolated area in these little villages, most of the villagers had, had, were worshiping Buddha or had some kind of connection with Buddha or a, a local sort of spiritism belief. Christianity was virtually unheard of in this northern provinces of Cambodia. But much to Pastor Singh surprised when he arrived in one small village, the people warmly embraced him in his message about Jesus. When he asked the villagers about their openness to the gospel, an old woman shuffled forward, bowed, and grasped his hands as she said, We have been waiting for you for 20 years. And then she told him the story the mysterious God who had hung on a cross. Some of you are old enough to remember the 1970s, the horrible scourge of the Khmer Rouge. In Cambodia, the brutal communist-led regime that took over Cambodia and destroyed everything in its path. Millions of people killed and slaughtered. When the soldiers finally came to this little village in northern Cambodia in 1979, they immediately rounded up the villagers. They forced them to dig their own common grave. And after the villagers had finished digging, they prepared themselves to die. They were standing at the edge of this grave, ready to be shot and to be pushed into this grave. Some of them were screaming to Buddha. Others were screaming to demon spirits or to their ancestors. But one woman, one woman started to cry for help based on a childhood memory. A story her mother had told her about a God who had hung on a cross. The woman prayed to that unknown God on a cross. Surely if this God had known suffering himself, he would have compassion on their plight. Suddenly, her one lonely, solitary cry became one great wail, and the entire village started praying to the God who had suffered and the God who'd hung on the cross. And as they continued facing their own graves, the wailing slowly turned to a quiet crying. And then there was an eerie silence in the muggy jungle. Slowly, as they dared to turn around and face their captors, they discovered the soldiers were gone. As the woman finished telling the story, she told Pastor Sang that ever since that humid day from 20 years ago, the villagers had been waiting, waiting for someone to come and share the rest of the story about the God who had hung on a cross. The cross and the lamb, the one who had suffered for us, the one who knew our suffering and yet had done something about it. The cross and the lamb comes through powerfully in John's symbolism and we see it vividly in the story out of Cambodia. One more theme here, third one, the cross and the spirit. There's a real uniqueness to John's wording when Jesus actually dies. 
When Jesus dies in Matthew, Matthew says he gave up his spirit. In Mark and Luke, it says that he breathed his last. But John uses a verb here that has more than the meaning of giving up his spirit. It means more of a giving over his spirit. Or a word that's used for handing over his spirit. Jesus is handing over his spirit. And so John here makes this link to the spirit, the Holy Spirit. The one who he has recorded Jesus promising in chapters 14, chapter 16. The spirit through whom Jesus will indwell the believer. The spirit who will come as comforter, advocate, helper, and guide. Jesus is really handing over that spirit. And it starts right here on the cross. Jesus is not giving up his spirit. Jesus is not giving up. He is giving over. He is giving over his spirit. He is beginning to usher in the gift of the spirit right at this moment. Yes, it will come in its fullness at Pentecost. Yes, he will give it the next day or three days later after the resurrection when he says to his disciples, receive now the Spirit. We'll get to that part of chapter 20 in a couple weeks. But it begins right here. He's been promising it. He's been talking about it. But right here on the cross, as he is dying physically, he is handing over his Spirit. We see it also in this understanding of the water and the blood. After breaking the bones of Jesus, John reports the piercing of his side and water and blood come from his side. I've always wondered about that. And and actually, it's because of the the beating and the scourging and flogging that Jesus has experienced and of hanging on the cross that a lot of fluid has built up in his pericardium, that area around the heart. And some say, doctors say, that that there can be as much as two liters of, of watery fluid that can build up around the pericardium under great stress like this. So there's literally water around his heart. And so some say that when the spear went through, it pierced his heart. And the blood came gushing from his heart, but it had to pass through, first through the pericardium. And so this blood and water coming together. So all this water then, the blood obviously receives, refers to the cleansing of the, the blood and the lamb. But the water, the water, the water hearkens to many of the places where the water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit in John's gospel. I don't expect you to remember everything, a lot of it. There might be a quiz at the end of our series, but we've, we've talked about this water thing before in the Holy Spirit. Where, where, where's, where's the water, where's the big water place? What, what story with Jesus? The woman at the, well, well, water there. To the woman at the well, he said, the water I give you will become in you a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. Jesus talked about water there. Chapter 7, we spent a few weeks in chapter 7 where Jesus was at the Feast of Tabernacles and we learned there that one of the things that happened at the Feast of Tabernacles was was water that poured out from the temple and down through these creeks and down into the valley and the water was very symbolic of the blessing of God, that river that we see in Ezekiel 47, all the stuff. The water was symbolic of the Spirit and in chapter 7 it says, whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus talked about water coming from him and it was the Spirit that was coming. And here it is now, here on the cross, the Spirit is being given. Or at least he's getting ready. Again, the next day he will tell his disciples, receive the Spirit. The cross and the Spirit are linked closely here. It's not put off to Pentecost. That's the fullness of the Spirit coming. But it begins here. And John details this symbolism of the water. In all of this, then, is this mixture of forgiveness and freedom and the promise of transformation and renewal and the gift of life Jesus gives. 
You see, the gift that Jesus gives is not just salvation. It's not just freedom from condemnation and the promise of eternal life. It is all that, and John affirms that, but it's more. Sometimes we tend to look at the Christian life as you just have to receive Jesus into your life, your sins will be forgiven, and you hang around and wait to go to heaven. But there's something going on in between. And John really gives us the fullness of that here. Yes, it's freedom from condemnation. Yes, it's the promise of eternal life. But John affirms this, but much more. Jesus offers life now. Our theme verse in chapter 20, we'll actually get there in two weeks. We're going to catch up to it after a year and a half. These things are written that you might believe and that in Jesus you might have life. And that's the life John's talking about here. Jesus gives over this life even now. The gift he has to give now has to do with transformation of lives now. It has to do with the renewal of lives now. It has to do with the hope of restoration of broken relationships now. It has to do with the healing of hurts now. It has to do with the healing even of bodies sometimes now. It has to do with living in hope now. Not just a hope of then, but a hope that motivates us now to, to care for others and to love others in the name of Jesus. And it all comes in the gift of the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit is alive, transforming and renewing. And it begins right here, right here on the cross. The cross and the King, the global King, comes to reign in our lives and assure a future. The cross and the Lamb. We have a global King and we have a Lamb image. The one whose blood shed covers our sin and the cross and the spirit, key themes that draw us to Jesus, to his victory, and the gift of life that he offers. I want us to reflect on those things as we prepare to come to the communion table in just a moment. And I think as you prepare to come to the table, and even as you're perhaps waiting for the elements to come, you might reflect on some of these questions. What might be keeping us from experiencing the fullness of life as Jesus gives it right now. And maybe that there's not even a relationship with Jesus. Or perhaps there's a relationship, but it's been a little dormant lately and crowded by things that have stressed us and kept us busy. This isn't a guilt time. This is a, just a handed over time. This is a lay it down at the cross time. What do you need to simply lay down, not as a horrible, horrible sin that's keeping you from Jesus, but just a, a thing that's kept you from that life? What, what might you need to lay down before him as you receive from the table? And then finally, I love the way Thomas and the worship band set us up for this with our worship set at the beginning. Jesus is here. Jesus is here right now. And we need to ask of ourselves, am I ready to receive? Am I ready to receive of Jesus? Let's pray then as we prepare for the table. Oh, Jesus, I look at this passage there's so much we didn't even cover. How powerful a an example, a witness. How powerful a, a working of God there on the cross. But Lord, we ask now that you would speak into each of these important images, not just symbols, but realities, that you are king. You are the perfect lamb of God who has taken away the sins and identified with us in our brokenness and need. And you have sent the spirit, you've handed over the spirit that we might be transformed and live. Thank you in and through all of this, Lord Jesus. You are present. And we prepare now to receive you again, asking this in your name. Amen.